0: Buy Peter's meat products, Jeff, I am today. They're quality meat products in every way. Try Peter's wieners or sliced luncheon meat. Peter's pork are a wonderful treat. Insist on Peter's meat products. Peter's delicious. For over 50 years, Peter's have made a quality product. All Peter's meat products are made from U.S. government inspected meats. So look for the name Peters. Peters the Leaders. Peters Delicious. Buy Peters meat products. Yes, buy them today. They're quality meat products in every way.
1: Try Peters wieners or sliced luncheon meat.
0: Peters porkettes are a wonderful treat. Insist on Peters meat products. Peters Delicious.
1: Can you describe
0: your relationship with Dr. Malcolm Perry III? Yes, I can. Um, Dr. Perry and I, I called him Mac, um, were residents together. He was a first year resident on my service when he first began, when I was a second year resident at Parkland. And so we very early on uh, developed a very close working relationship and a very close friendship, uh, all during the subsequent years.
1: Could you describe his, uh professional reputation.
0: Oh, excellent. couldn't have a better reputation than Dr. Perry. And he was a superb doctor and a physician and a person.
1: And did he ever talk about his grandfather?
0: Yes, he did. He enjoyed and he loved him dearly and he loved to, you know, talk about his life with him. And I think, you know, he looked upon him really both as a father and a grandfather since his grandfather essentially raised Malcolm.
1: Did he ever talk about some of his... Uh, Country, uh, how he practiced medicine, because he was known to, he could get from point A to point B pretty fast.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I can imagine, I can't, don't know, but I can imagine what being a country physician, a general practitioner back in those days, in fact, I think it's a rather Looking back, I would suspect it was a rather enviable, although very tiresome and responsible job, but nevertheless very rewarding. And when I first got interested in medicine, uh, because of some of the examples of physicians similar to him in my little hometown over in East Texas, that's what appealed to me. And that's what I had planned to be was a hometown general practitioner, and, you know, like as close as I could be to what uh, he was.
1: And so you grew up in Gilmer. Yes. And you mentioned that your grandfather was a horse and buggy doctor.
0: That's right, Right. out in the country. Yeah, he lived about six miles out uh, in the country, a little community of Glenwood uh, out uh, east of of Gilmer.
1: And uh, tell us the story about him coming back on the horse asleep.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, (coughs) my grandfather would travel around on his horse and make house calls and see his patients uh, very frequently, almost all the time. In fact, maybe a good deal of his practice was making house calls out in the country. And when he would come back home at night, uh, he would ride up in the front yard Oh, you know, 10, 12 o'clock at night. And the way they knew he was back home, they had a bulldog that would go to the door of the room, the living room, where they were sitting waiting for him, my, gra- my grandmother and, and one of her other sons, and uh, her older son, and she would have him go outside when she heard the dog, you know, pawing at the door, and have him go out, and my grandfather was very small, and my Uncle Alan, uh, who was his older oldest son, was quite large, and so he would, Uh, find that my grandfather was asleep in the saddle, and the horse would know the way home, and so he had brought him home, and my grandfather would very gently uh, lift him, mean, my my uncle would very gently lift him out of the saddle and bring him back into the house. That was my Uncle Alan who did that.
1: Um, What were you doing the morning of November twenty second, 1963?
0: That morning uh, was a fairly, you know, typical morning. And uh, I uh, was uh, going down the hall in the operating room, and uh, one of the residents in surgery, Dr. uh, Chuck Crenshaw, came into a conference room where I was. He knocked on the door. And I went out out of the door of the conference room where I'd been holding a little session with students. And he said, Dr. Mack, could you step out here for a moment? I need to tell you something. And so I stepped out, and he said they just called the emergency room and said that uh, President Kennedy in his motorcade downtown had been shot, and they want all of the faculty surgeons to come down immediately to the emergency room. And so that's how I first heard about it.
1: And so you went to the
0: room. We went down the elevator, which was just the second floor was the operating room, and the ground floor was the op- was the uh, emergency room just below the operating room. And so we rode down the elevator, and as we were riding on, I said to uh, them, I said, well, you know, we often hear stories about terrible things, that have happened and it turns out they're not quite as bad uh, as we thought they were when we get actually see the case right. in the emergency room. So with that the doors to the elevator came open and I walked out around a little corner room into the big area called the pit in the middle of the emergency room and I saw this large crowd of men in business suits all wearing hats. Back in those days everybody wore a hat and as I stood there Uh, I thought I'd never seen a crowd of people like that in the emergency room many times I'd been there. And so as I stood there for a moment, the crowd spontaneously parted uh, so that I could see about probably 40 or 50 feet through the little corridor that was made by that crowd parting to four rooms off the back of the emergency room, trauma room one, two, three, and four. And sitting outside of trauma room one, uh, in that hallway was Mrs. Kennedy in a folding chair, sitting there quietly, uh, holding her bag and you know I thought myself, my goodness, this is just exactly what they said. I had to literally force myself to continue walking back toward her.
1: It was when you say force yourself were you feeling anxiety or
0: well, I don't know what I would call it. Certainly it was um, you know, something almost unexplainable, but it was, uh, I didn't know, first of all, I knew that several of my friends on the faculty uh, were out, probably this was at lunch at noontime, were out somewhere having lunch, and I knew my chief of surgery, Dr. Tom Shires, was a visiting professor in Galveston at the University of Texas Medical Branch down there, so I thought to myself as I walked toward Mrs. Kennedy, I may be the senior, quote unquote, faculty person here. You know, even though there were a lot of resident physicians and interns around, I may be the senior. It was my second year on the surgery faculty at Southwestern Medical School.
1: So during, uh, the because of the lunch hour and because of previous arrangements with the senior staffer to be in Galveston, Uh, a number of the senior staffers were not there right now.
0: Well, actually only our chief, Dr. Shires, was in Galveston as a visiting professor. But at noontime, uh, since the food at Parkland was not the best, (laughs) most of the people went out, the faculty and, and others, went out somewhere along Harry Hines to one of the eating places there. So it sort of occurred to me, with that in mind, that I may be one of the only uh, people here. I may find myself going into that room and that I'm, I'm it. And this was two days after my 34th birthday in my second year on the faculty.
1: And what was, after you saw Mrs. Kennedy, when did you see the president?
0: Well, I continued walking down toward trauma room one, and I had seen, as I said, Mrs. Kennedy sitting in her bloody clothing outside of trauma room one, and that's when I immediately knew that it was a terrible event you know, that they had said it was. And I had to force myself almost to keep walking toward her and toward tall room one, just off of the emergency room. And as I got to the door, uh, she continued sitting there, and I pushed the door open and walked in. And of course, the first vivid image that is still in my mind that I saw was the president lying on his back with his face toward a light and toward me uh, and his bloody head, you know, And uh, I thought that's just what they said it was, and it was a terrible thing to see. that's still emblazoned in my memory, that picture of him lying there with that bloody wound.
1: It must have been an awesome moment.
0: Oh my, terrible. But I was also, at the same time I was so horrified, I was gratified to see, well, I'm not alone as a faculty person, that Dr. Malcolm Perry uh, and Dr. Charles Baxter had just preceded me into the room a minute or two before I got there. And Dr. Perry was draping the president's neck with a little surgical drape in preparation for making a tracheotomy incision in the president's neck. So when I walked by on the other side of the cart from where Dr. Perry was standing, he handed me a little surgical retractor and he said, Bob, would you go and stand at the head of the cart And put this retractor in the incision that we're about to make to put the tracheostomy in. So I did that and went there and stood that directly above the patient's head wound. I was probably 18 inches above uh, that massive wound in the back of his head where I'm pointing here that was probably at least five inches in circumference, circular in circumference. And so when I saw that I was you know of course aghast and I asked Malcolm and uh, Dr. Baxter, I said my God have you seen the back of his head and they said no we just got in here before you did and I said well the right side of the back of his head is essentially gone and as I stood there uh, and the bit of his brain in fact the cerebellum the far part of the brain way back here fell out onto the cart in front of me so this was obvious that this was an immediately a uh, fatal wound, no question about it.
1: When you, uh, can you tell us why uh, Dr. Perry elected to do the tracheotomy?
0: Well, that's an interest that many people ask that question because the very first thing that was done when the president came into the emergency room, Dr. James Carrico, who subsequently became the chief of our department, was just a first year resident in surgery. In charge of the emergency room and so he's the very first physician who saw the president as he was rolled into the emergency room from his car and he saw the distress that he was in breathing so he immediately took a laryngoscope Dr. Carrico did put it into the president's mouth and inserted an endotracheal tube into the president's trachea like anesthesiologists do when they're beginning to you know give anesthesia and connected him to a ventilator a breathing machine and then rolled him on back into trauma room one and I think the reason Malcolm well I know the reason Malcolm was doing the tracheotomy even though he had control of his airway with the tube that had been put in by Dr. Carrico was to get more certain uh, control uh, by making a permanent or semi permanent at least opening in the neck and into the windpipe to put in a tracheotomy tube so that the endotracheal tube could be removed because there are a lot of complications that can occur if the endotracheal tube is left in uh, very long.
1: And uh, Dr. Perry had told me that, I'd just like for you to say it, that the first bullet had avoided the carotid artery and the spinal column, which gave him a little bit of hope for a little bit of time that he could help save his life.
0: That's correct, that's correct. And so when I went and stood at the head of the gurney, the cart where the president was lying, I guess I was the first one to get a very close view of the president's wound uh, because Dr. Perry had not had the opportunity, having just come in before me, to do anything you know closer than try to do something to get control of his respiration, which was the appropriate thing to do. We have what we call the ABCs of trauma care, which is airway bleeding and uh, you know coagulation. And so he did the first thing, establish an airway. And uh, that's what he was doing to permanently do that. Uh, with the tracheotomy, so even though he did have the tracheostomy tube in.
1: And uh, you noticed the head wound.
0: Right, massive head wound, probably five inches in diameter in the back right side of the head.
1: And was, uh, I forgot the name of the other part of the brain where it controls the breathing. Uh, Cerebellum. uh, the part of the brain that controls the breathing?
0: Oh, that's uh, the the, uh, medulla. Medulla.
1: Mm -hmm. Tell us how the medulla was keeping the president alive.
0: Uh, Well, the medulla was, uh, oddly enough, pretty much intact, and so he was making gasping attempts, what we call agonal attempts, to breathe, and his cardiac activity was still quite good immediately after entering the emergency room. He was not dead when he came in, and so they inserted the tube and uh, began to do something to get his heart activity back about the time I came in, and uh, that's where I came in.
1: And at what point did y'all realize this was a fetal?
0: Very quickly. Um, we had They had attached, the nurses had attached an electrocardiographic monitor to him immediately after the president came into trauma room one. And he initially, very first tracings, showed normal cardiac activity. Uh, and then probably just maybe four or five minutes, after all this began, when he came in and after Dr. Perry had already begun to make the tracheotomy incision, uh, Dr. Clark, our neurosurgeon, who had then come into the room and was watching the cardiac monitor, as Dr. Perry and Dr. Baxter and I worked on the president, uh, he saw that the cardiac monitor flatlined, what we call flatlining, because all the cardiac activity had suddenly ceased. and what. Dr. Clark's exact words were to Dr. Perry. He said, Mac, you can stop now because he's gone now.
1: And how did Mrs. Kennedy find out that her husband had...
0: Well, uh, she kept coming in and out of the room every minute or so uh, while the president's first resuscitation attempts were being made. And so she was gently ushered back out each time by Dr. Clark or one of the other physicians who was in the room, but wasn't actually directly involved uh, in taking care of the president's uh, tracheotomy or any of the other activity. And she would then leave the room, but then in just a moment, she would come back in. And so when he was declared dead, She came back in, and of course she was then not ushered out, but was allowed to stay. And I was standing across from her uh, as she came in, uh, directly across from her. And I vividly remember that scene in my mind, that she stood there and didn't say anything. She was completely self-contained, but obviously in a state of shock, but not crying or weeping or any kind of external thing like that. And she stood there for a moment, and then she took a ring from her finger and put it on his finger, and a ring from his finger and put it on her finger. And then she stood there for a moment, and then walked slowly to the door of the trauma room and stepped outside. And we continued, you know, doing what we were doing. As
1: I understand it, she asked that the nation do not be informed that he had died until the last
0: rites. That's, that's correct.
1: Can you talk about that?
0: Well, not that much. I don't have that much detailed information about that at all since I was, you know, not in on that as I was with the immediate, you know, thing that happened to the president in trauma room one. So, but I think that was what was said. That's what I was told anyway.
1: The last rites were they administered while you were there?
0: Yes, in fact, um, while we were standing there Uh, and after Dr. Clark had pronounced him dead, then very quickly after that, I guess of course he had been called, uh, a priest came in, as I recall his name was Father Huber, Uh, and he came over to the cart uh, where he was uh, standing by the president, uh, just maybe a foot or two next to me, and I could hear what he said. Uh, He said, uh, Initially, I couldn't hear what he said after that, but initially he said, if thou livest. And then uh, he didn't say anything else after that that I could hear, and he bent over to the president's ear and said some other words that I can, but he began that by saying, if thou livest.
1: Um, who? So Dr. Clark told Mrs. Kennedy that her husband had passed away? Yes. And... Uh as I recall on the camera footage as she left the hospital, she was very composed.
0: Yes, she was. Completely we were, you know, as a very we weren't saying she was cold or, you know, she was obviously in a state not of shock, but very grief stricken. But she was not crying or, you know, making any <coughs> excuse me, any sounds.
1: Well we all handle grief differently. Yeah. And- how long, what did they do with the president's body after he
0: died? Well, uh, as soon as we, you know, he was declared dead, he was very quickly moved out of trauma room one uh, by someone, I can't remember exactly who it was, and taken around a uh, hallway next to the emergency room uh, to the morgue. And as he was coming along, uh, was some secret service men uh, commandeered the cart and took the body away. Our uh, pathologist, our you know legal uh, path- forensic pathologist, uh, kind of took issue with that and asked them to stand aside. And so they told him uh, the two Secret Service men were there uh, as they approached with the president's body or the president and uh, <clears throat> told him to stand aside, and in fact, one of them picked uh, you know him up and set him against the wall, and they turned and then rolled the president out onto the back of the hospital and into the presidential limousine uh, to go back to the Air Force One.
1: So no uh, autopsy was performed here in Dallas?
0: Not in Dallas. That was performed that evening when they got back to Washington. So we didn't know anything directly about that.
1: How has this event changed your life?
0: Well, I can't say that it's changed it. It certainly has the most significant event I ever have been involved in, or probably ever will be. Um, and so I'm not discounting it, but I can't say that it made any different turn or change in my life. I continued, you know, doing what I was doing as a professor of surgery and. That was what I did day by day, although not on the President of the United States.
1: Did um, uh, you have any interaction with Mrs. Kennedy before or during or after?
0: Uh, no, only you know, having seen her directly standing across from him and noting that ring exchange. And what other um, impressive and sort of almost make-you-want-to-weep event Uh, When she walked to the foot of the cart that the president was lying on, he had been taken out of his clothes and his shoes, and so his right foot was protruding out from underneath the sheet that had been used to cover him in the emergency room and in the trauma room, and she stood by his right foot for a moment, then leaned over and kissed his foot and walked out of the emergency room or out of trauma room one immediately after that.
1: Um, did you notice any brain matter? Was she carrying any brain matter? Yes,
0: she came into trauma room one uh, and handed a portion of the president's brain that she had retrieved in some way uh, to, I think, you know one of the physicians, uh, Dr. Jones, or someone uh, who was involved immediately in his care.
1: Did you uh, ever hear from Mrs. Kennedy afterwards? No. Nothing. Or any of the doctors that you know of?
0: No. I mean, you know, we didn't really expect to. Right.
1: Um, Did you see then Vice President Johnson at all?
0: Uh, No, no. He was across the hall in trauma room two uh, while we were so occupied in trauma room one. He was? Yes.
1: Um, Is there anything I should have asked and didn't?
0: I can't think of anything. I'd be happy to try to answer whatever.
1: One more question. Uh, How did growing up in Gilmer prepare you for that day?
0: Um, How did it do what now?
1: How did growing up in Gilmer prepare you for that day?
0: Oh, I don't think there can be any preparation for that day. Uh, and never could be. But uh, I had wanted to be a physician uh, ever since I was probably about 12 years old. My grandfather was a physician, and I had other members of my family, cousins and whatnot, and so we had a a family history of, of being physicians, and I got very interested in medicine when I was about 12 and decided I would go to medical school, which I did at the University of Texas in Galveston in 1950.
1: Were you ever threatened?
0: People often ask me that, and no, I was not.
1: Dr. Perry, I thought and I may be mistaken because I didn't take any notes, I thought he inferred that he had been.
0: Yes, he did. That's what he told me. He didn't talk about it much, but he did say to me that someone had come up to him and cautioned him that he shouldn't say anything, you know, keep his mouth shut.
1: Uh, was was his family ever threatened? See, he left the state of Texas after this occurred. Right. He went up to New York to practice medicine and retired back in Texas. Right. But uh, I thought he told me that he left because he did not feel safe.
0: I think that's true. And I I'm think not being mistaken. No, no. I think that's true that he didn't. Uh, I'm not quite sure why that was, but I'm, we were very close. As I said, we had offices across the hall from one another for many years and we had gone through residency together. So I would say he was really my closest friend, uh, at that time.
1: Now he went on television, uh, uh, it's poor filming. I've seen the footage that afternoon and described a little bit about the, and he made a mistake of some sort, and I don't know what it was. But everybody jumped on that. Aha, he. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, he was 34 years old. He just had a traumatic situation, something that none of us would ever face. And if he made a mistake, telling what happened, big deal. As far as I'm concerned, big deal. But what was it that was conflicting with? Uh, that footage with what really happened.
0: I think it was a question, and I can't remember the details about it, but I think it was a question about uh, the direction in which the bullet entered the president's head from the front or the back. <coughs> and I can't remember, <coughs> excuse me, what Dr. Perry said, but I think he said, and don't quote me on this, but I think he said that he thought it entered from the front,
1: right. of here. And then later changed the testimony that came in from the back.
0: That's right.
1: Where do you think it came in from?
0: Well, I think that he was correct in his first statement. Uh, As I've looked back over the years and what uh, is in my mind is that, uh, and I saw this, this was confirmed, when I saw the Zapruder film of the assassination sometime in the middle 70s when it was first released by Abraham Zapruder. And I came home one night and my wife was watching the Johnny Carson show and she said, oh, come in here quick because Geraldo Rivera is on Johnny Carson and he's acquired a copy of the Zapruder film of the assassination. So I quickly went in and sat down just before they rolled that film. And as we sat there, we saw the motorcade turning off onto Elm Street and coming down toward the triple underpass and coming down slowly toward that. And as he approached the triple underpass, he was all of a sudden, uh, earlier, was hit in the back. And he raised his hands to his neck. Like that. And I think that's when the first bullet that hit him came in the back and came out his neck, and his hands went to his neck. And then the motorcade slowly moved down toward the triple underpass. And as they got, you know, a moment or two later, Mrs. Kennedy realized that something was wrong, and she leaned over to him as if to say, you know, what's the matter? And as she did that, uh, the bullet struck him in the front. Uh, which I think may have very likely been fired from the picket fence in front of the president's motorcade and caused the fatal wound blew out the back of his head and the black part of his brain the back part of his cerebrum and cerebellum
1: well, I can't thank you enough for sharing your your eyewitness to history because I think of what we could have had with if they'd interviewed doctors after President Lincoln had died you know it, Nobody seemed to interview them, uh, Mm -hmm. or they wouldn't talk, or or didn't, or whatever. Now, there were people who shared their stories about what they thought happened, but I don't recall, uh, there were some, but I don't recall, like, this kind of interview with any of the doctors. I I don't either. And, you know, he lived all through the night.
0: Yeah, he didn't die until, what, 7 o'clock the next morning, something like
1: that. Possibly with modern-day surgery, they... uh, could have saved him because, i don't know, uh, I don't know. Was, he lives so long yeah and uh but uh, i have never read a, a full medical you know detailed mm-hmm. analysis mm-hmm. So this gives us an insight into this assassination that the american public will never have about president lincoln
0: yeah yeah well, uh, any
1: mark any questions i should ask and didn't i have none i don't hear the first part so mm-hmm. uh, governor connell Oh, did you, uh, oh, we forgot this, the next few parts. Did you operate it at all on Doc, Governor
0: Connolly? Uh, no, I didn't. He was across the hall. Uh, and uh, Dr., uh, one of our residents, and Dr. Um, Red Duke, who ended up subsequently uh, on the faculty at UT in Houston, right. uh, was a close friend of mine. He was uh, sort of heading up the care of Governor Connolly and taking care of him while we were working across the hall on the president.
1: Governor Connor was a friend of my father's, and like Dr. Perry, he really didn't like talking about the assassination. Mm-hmm. But he did tell my father one time, he said if the bullet had been just a little angle, just a little bit different, it might have hit his heart or his lung or something. Oh, yeah. And uh, now tell us, that, that that wasn't the end of your weekend. Uh, tell us about Sunday when Lee Harvey at Oswald.
0: Oh, okay. yeah. Well, Sunday, the following Sunday, which was just, you know, the assassination occurred on Friday, November the 22nd, uh, my wife and uh, I had gone to church at the Highland Park Methodist Church near where we lived, and we'd just gotten back. And so while she was upstairs getting ready to go out to dinner or to lunch, I thought, well, I'll sit down here and turn the TV on and see what's happening. And as I did that and I turned the TV on, And as the picture was forming, I heard the voiceover saying, he's been shot, he's been shot. And I thought, my goodness, what now? And then the picture formed, and I saw this classic picture of Lee Harvey Oswald standing, you know, holding the gun, and he had just shot, you know, uh, him, uh, been shot. And so I called up, when I got up from my chair, walked to the stairway where my wife was upstairs and called up to her. I said, they've just shot Oswald, so I need to go to Parkland and see what I can do because they're bringing him there. And she called down and she said, who is Oswald? And I said, he's the man they say shot President Kennedy. And her exact words was, oh, well, we'll see you later. So.
1: And when you got to the hospital, did you ever... uh I think Dr. Perry also assisted with that surgery.
0: Oh, yes, he was the first person to see the president. Not the very first person, actually, Dr. Carrico, who was an intern, yeah.
1: Um, Did he ever, was there ever at the point where you thought he might be able to save him?
0: Oswald, yes, I think it, it was potentially possible, but he had lost so much blood and been in such deep shock that I think he had irreversible damage to his, the muscle of his heart, and so he really couldn't, you know, be resuscitated when he um, suddenly heart arrested, and we was massaged, you know, we did closed chest massage. At that time, they just started doing that instead of open chest cardiac massage, and no activity came back on the electrocardiogram, and. Uh, I think we opened his chest, uh, it's a little vague in my mind now, and saw that the heart was not beating and never could get it to come back. But we had some hope that perhaps we could.
1: As I recall, Dr. Perry said the surgery, he was in surgery 30 minutes maybe, 40. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. But he would tie up, uh, what's the medical term, is it suture? Suture this laceration, and is that the correct term? Mm-hmm. Suture this last, and he said... Just we couldn't get him closed off fast enough because mm-hmm. he kept bleeding so much.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And that bullet just, this is not the term he used, but really lacerated so many vessels.
0: Oh, well, it, the thing that killed him, the bullet, I think, having you know seen the wound and having then year, years later seen this a Pruder film of the assassination, uh, confirmed to me that the president was shot from the front, most likely, and maybe by someone from the back. But uh, the bullet that killed him, I think, was fired from the front and hit him in the hairline and then blew out the back of his skull on the right side.
1: And this is where your thinking differs from the Warren Commission's report? Yes. Well, I cannot thank you enough for your time. Hey, Petey, have you heard about this new podcast, Public Access America? You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, and even the Stitcher Smart Radio app. It's so cool. Not for not. But are you a German spy? Because that sounds like technology. It's like that new thing, the radio, or a newspaper for your ears. You can even follow their production company, Jar Codes, on Twitter or Facebook and find all new episodes posted every day. Oh! That's cool. I don't care nothing about no planes, but I got to hear the latest episode of Public Access America now. Oh, watch the bomb. You can even go to their YouTube channel at Public Access America and find great videos from part time. It's so cool. Go check out Public Access America.